Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Home Education Matters and I'm really excited today because I'm joined by Lainey Liberty and Lainey is amongst many things she is a TED talker, she is an author, she is a world schooler and she's a teen mentor and I suspect she's other things that I've forgotten to mention as well but for today Lainey is joining us to talk about her book Seen, Heard and Understood. So before we launch into talking about your best-selling book um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your home education journey? Sure. Well, I am a mom, um, as you mentioned, and my son is now a grown unschooler, world schooler. He is 24, but we did live nomadically from the age of nine to, well, you know, I mean, it's kind of a, like, 2020, we were in Mexico. We happened to be in Mexico for a conference that we were hosting, and then the world lockdown, so we just sort of stayed. So so the last three years, we've been in Mexico. So I don't know if you consider that the nomadic part, but it's been about 15 years since we left our home country. So like I said, for him, age 9 to 24, and we're still at it. Um, yeah, so um, I'm an advocate among many things for alternative education. I'm an anarchist mom. Um, I work with teens. I love working with teens. I've traveled around the world with teens. Um, yeah, I've written a book. I work with parents. I work with entire families as well. And yeah, I'm I just all of my work is a combination of all of these things. I'm also an artist, so you left that one out. I forgot and that I, one, right? Yeah, and I always combine everything in everything that I do. It's interesting you say about being an anarchist because I I a firm believer that homeschooling or home education is an ultimate act of anarchy because you're so opting out of the system so far. Um, And then also introducing some quite controversial ideas like autonomy and freedom and and those kind of ideas. And I know that you're very much an advocate for that when it comes to parenting. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about your approach to parenting? Of course. Uh, And in fact, I light up and I'm very passionate about that. So really the true definition of anarchy is living without a ruler, right? No ruler. And what that means is all of the interactions, relationships that we have must be consensual. I must opt in. And it's okay if I decide to give somebody some sort of authority. That is my voluntary consent to engage in that kind of system or relationship or whatever, right? So um, that means I must be very intentional about my choices. I don't give away my authority easily. Um, You know, there are occasions where, you know, I trust an expert in certain things, you know, whatever the, the situation is, but obviously it's by voluntary choice. It's not coercive in any, by any nature. Now, Anarchists understand this. And, you know, this is why the creation of of decentralized currency is out there and alternatives in medicine and all of these different movements. I get that. But a lot of times anarchists don't know how to take this into their family unit. And in fact, they continue to practice the authoritarian model of, well, I'm the parent. I said, so even though I've taken you out of school, you're still going to study this and you still have homework and I'm still going to check on this and do your chores and go brush your teeth and don't eat in between meals and all of the, the silly arbitrary rules which are created for the convenience of the parents. And somehow parents, especially anarchist parents, have this blind spot where they don't see that they are imposing an authoritarian paradigm on this this whole, whole human being that is in our care, our stewardship, that is entrusted you know, in us in order to facilitate, take care, guide, and uh, help them actualize the sense of self 
that they are already born into. To me, it's the biggest gift to be a parent, but I'm not there to change and put my viewpoints into the, the head of this young person. They're born whole. I'm here to expose them to the world, to gently guide them, to hold them and 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 stand back, you know, when they false and catch them, to help them unpack natural consequences, to help them and guide them in a way so they have access to whatever lights them up and to explore their passions and to be there when they make mistakes and help them experience whatever the natural consequences of those decisions are in partnership without judgment. So that's what anarchist parenting looks like, or I like to call it partnership parenting. And I think that if more people adapted a sovereignty-based approach in parenting, in humanity, right? You know, my rights end where yours begin, which is the foundation of anarchist living, right? I can't impose my will upon you because you too have the sovereignty of an individual. And even though a child is in our care, there are absolute ways that we need to support them and allow them to express the autonomy which is their God-given right. Why do you think there is this blind spot when it comes to children's rights and children's expression? Because my children from a very young age, they were they sort of like used the term childism for anything where they felt that their rights were being trampled over. And it's not a term you hear very much, and yet it is out there. And we do have this kind of blind spot when it comes to children. I'm guessing other people would say, well, it's because they're small and unformed and, you know, they're brains haven't developed yet and they're maybe not capable of seeing the end result of of their decisions and so we have to kind of make decisions for them okay so let me break that into several <laughs> answers here um why do i think people have blind spots i think people have blind spots because as you say childism is accepted in Western culture. It just simply is. Um, in other cultures, for example, I always talk about the continuum concept, which is a book written about this wonderful anthropologist who lived in the Amazon jungle and studied how this tribe of, of people raised their children and they raised it communally. They raised it first and foremost with the belief that each human being was born whole and it's not up to the parent or the community to force them to become something that they think they should be. It's to help them to pull out and bring out that essence of self that they already have been imbued with. This is, this is their birthright, right? And that's a totally different concept than Western culture. Western culture believes we've got this group, you know, we've got this child and because I, I, you know, brought this child into the world, it's my responsibility to fill its head with my values, my goals, my, what I think is right, what I think is wrong. And that totally disregards the sense of autonomy from this individual that was just born. And we all know, especially like the example of parents that have multiple children, right? They're the same DNA from both the mother and the father, yet each child is born individual. And there's no getting around that. It's not by, it's not purely biological. It, there's something else. There is an essence of personality that is that each child is born with. You know, I, I, I've spoken to parents you know, over my entire lifetime that have complained about, well, this child was so easy when they were a child and this child was born with a chip on their shoulder was, you know, they always- Almost died. like they're different children in some way. <laughs> Almost, crazy Shock. enough, right? <laughs> and that alone should, should indicate how individual each one of us is born to. We're not this mold to be molded for the 
convenience of the children of the parents right and and that you know was somebody who was listening to this might be throwing up their arms and saying well that wasn't convenient i just wanted it that i wanted what's best for them and your idea of what's best for them is an agenda that you're imposing on them and even if you decide to approach it through the lens of um, say peaceful parenting or gentle parenting, which all have wonderful merits, you're still manipulating the child. And even though you're kindly doing it, it is an act of coercion. And this is not what we're talking about with um, anarchist or partnership parenting, right? This is not what we're talking about. This uh, partnership parenting is messy because the relationship between between uh, individuals right which make up a family unit it could be any formation there there's no lack of types of families it doesn't matter if it's two people or if it's 20 people in a family we can all be in relationship with these individuals and each one has a different sense of self that they're coming to the relationship with and that's for us to figure out to negotiate to cooperate with to collaborate with some people also call this form of parenting collaborative parenting which actually is a great description um but in essence you have to honor the individual in order to collaborate if you do it under the guise of collaboration you're still trying to manipulate them into being what you, what you want them to be for your convenience it's no longer collaborative it's it's coercive so what point does what you want to happen stop and what your child wants to happen stop like where is the common ground who trumps what like I mean, it, you said it's messy, but it sounds slightly chaotic. I mean, do you just sort of lean into that and go, actually, do you know what? It's okay to be chaotic as long as we're we're sort of honoring each other's individuality. Absolutely. And for me, I'm one of those people who must have tools. I must have the scaffolding around me in order to make sense of the world around me and and for me, life is messy, right? And I'm really in touch with the internal worlds. And so for me, the thing that works best is using tools for greater mental health. And one of the mental health tools that I use in family units, including my own, is each one of us in our family defines what our core values are. And that really requires internal work, communication, understanding. And in fact, I've walked your daughter through this process as well. And core values are powerful because they trump rules. It's the question is, you know, we want, you want to do this. I want to do this. How do we collaborate or cooperate in order to get both of our needs met? Well, let's run this challenge through our core values and see where the alignments are. So if we know that the align, we're in alignment in this way through this core value, we we've got our answer. And part of the trick is understanding what our individual core values are and coming together as a family unit and collectively defining what is it that our family unit that we're co-creating stands for let's define our collective family values and that's an awesome tool or scaffolding to to help co-create and understand and come to a conclusion based on whatever challenges are we're faced with so it it's not like i'm the authority i'm the adult i win it's it's like well we've co-created these values and this decision is not in alignment with what's important to us collectively individually we may have some alignment here so then let's look at how this whole decision affects the family because that's what we're talking about in this moment but if it's important to get your needs met along those levels let's see how we can work together i wonder when it comes to values whether there's an element of parents handing down their values 
and sort of saying, these are my values. These are the values I expect you to have. And like you say, kind of forming that individual, partly because it just creates a smooth running, non-conflict house. And partly because it's just a kind of nice, cohesive thing. I mean, if you think about, for example, um, a lot of religions, they base themselves around this transmutation of values, you know, like one generation after another within a religion has the same values. And it, it, it keeps them together, right? It gives them an identity. And I wonder whether families sometimes feel that they have family values and that's actually something that keeps them together and means that they don't maybe have arguments every other day. <laughs> I mean, yes, but you're talking about, again, a coercive act by a parent for the convenience of the parents, right? Parenting is messy and there's no getting around that, right? And if we are... Uh, giving birth to little clones of ourselves, then okay, then you can dictate because you already know you, but we're talking about another individual that is not you. And how do we enter a cooperative relationship? Even though you gave birth to this person, it doesn't mean you own this person. It means this person has you know, come into your life and you are the steward of their their safety and their wellness. But part of that wellness is helping them to actualize who they are. Now, I know I didn't answer your question. Um, how, how do you get around the messiness and isn't it more convenient, right? Yes, it is more convenient. And there are times where people are not in alignment from a values perspective. But what that requires is connection. Diversity is the richness of life. It really is it's okay that we have different belief systems and i could tell you like from a political perspective my son and i are not seeing eye to eye in terms of what we believe in but we have these beautifully um you know uh, alive conversations that are always almost always pretty respectful <laughs> There's, every now and then there's like this tinge of, you know, like little frustration, but it's okay. And it actually enriches my life because I now have from a diverse viewpoint, I have an expanded awareness of how the world could work. And because I, I absolutely adore and love this human being, to me, it's really important to understand that idealism and those viewpoints and why those things light him up. That makes my life better. It doesn't have to be the same. And it can make me uncomfortable. And as a, an adult in the situation, I must be comfortable with stepping into the discomfort of life. And it's okay. It's okay because those are the spaces that we grow and expand and learn. And I think as well, it's one of those things that as an adult, we tend to accept and thrive when we're with adults that just challenge us and that are robust in their views and that and that give us new perspectives on life, it tends to be something we actively seek out with adults. But with children, we find it quite confrontational. It's almost like we, you know, with an adult, it's okay if they disagree with us and, and we'll have a glass of wine and, and talk about it and, and it'll be fun and it'll be inspiring. But with a child, it's like, no, be quiet now. That's not what I want you to be saying. Right, right. And a lot of people's egos are challenged with the intellect or the opinions or the diverse viewpoints or worldviews of our children. I get that. I do get that. I wonder yeah. if partly the the reason the ego um, gets involved there is because the child's traditional role has been to be submissive and obedient, much like perhaps a hundred years ago, a man would have been would have had his ego sort of uh, deflated by a woman voicing a, a different yeah. opinion. Perhaps now we're just in that evolutionary journey where in a hundred years we'll be amazed that that children weren't seen and heard in the way that they are, the way that they should be. Absolutely. And you did mention earlier the whole idea of childism. And I, I have a section in my book about childism. And in the back of my book, there's a wonderful resource um, for a, a book that's written solely about the concept of childism, if people want to dive deeper. But it is a common practice. We never question it. 
culturally, we just believe, as you said, children should be, you know, they should only be seen and heard when it's of the convenience of the adults. And to me, that is such a, a, a a disrespect to humanity as a whole. We're doing such an injustice and a disservice to culture as a whole because we're disempowering young people, right? And why do you think once you know uh, young people start moving into their adolescence, that the natural cultural you know norm is rebellion among adolescents? Yes, uh, biologically and physiologically, they're wired to individuate, and there's lots of things happening internally in terms of development, brain development, hormonal, and, and all sorts of different nervous system changes and so forth. But it doesn't have to be expressed as rebellion. But because they've been in a childish society for as long as they have been, right, up until they hit adolescence, and that is the the number one way to start expressing one's um, individuality at that point in exploring the sense of self. In my case, and in a lot of um, cases with uh, children that were raised in partnership, they don't go through that. They don't go through the rebellion because, well, they weren't oppressed you know, for the entirety of their life up until that point. And in fact, adolescence is a time and was a time in my child's uh, journey where we were the most, you know, tightly knit and closest because of the incredible changes. We had this amazing bond already as the foundation of our relationship. And we were able to, to talk through everything from the internal worlds, the, the, the feelings, the perceptions, the fears, all that stuff comes up and I was the safe person to talk to. You know, it's fascinating you said that because actually the next question on my list was about that. It was about this idea of teenage rebellion because I had, I remember when my children were quite young and I had friends who had younger siblings that we we would go on play dates with, but they also had older siblings and the parents, the mothers would say, Oh, watch out for the teenage years. They'd be like, well, you, you get on well with your daughter now, but teenage girls, you know, one day they just walk down the stairs and they hate you. And all this kind of, I heard about this stuff all the time. And I honestly was kind of dreading the teenage years because I thought, well, this is inevitable. Like this is, everybody says it's inevitable. Even I used to read uh, theories about, you know, the different developments of children and the teenage rebellion was in the theoretical sort of, you know, it was one of the stages that they had to go through. And yet my children are now 15 and 17 and we've never had it. And and people will say to me, it'll come, it'll happen, it'll come. And I'm like, I don't think it is going to because I'm not sure what they would actually rebel against because I don't really have anything exactly. that I'm forcing upon them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's just a different dynamic. Absolutely. The One of the challenges, especially in a family where the adult hasn't done their work, they haven't unpacked and resolved and looked at their own childhood, their, you know, perhaps their childhood traumas, and any of these beliefs that um, were, you know, laid down as a programming track <laughs> when they were young th from their own childhood. If they're teen or their child does something that triggers them it's as if the parent becomes that you know eight-year-old or that five-year-old or that 14-year-old that experienced the trauma in their own lives and suddenly that unhealed or or child or or frightened child or sad child is in the relationship Right. And that tends to be where the conflict happens. And a lot of us had kind of tumultuous uh, adolescence. I know I did. And for me, I'm really grateful that Miro wasn't rebellious because it could have triggered me in such a really deep way um, just because of my own teen uh, traumas, childhood traumas. Um, yeah, but I've done a lot of work, but 
a lot of the families that I work with are still moving through the recognition that there were needs that weren't met inside of them when they were growing up. And when their teen or child does something, that kind of pain gets reactivated in them. And it it's really hard for them to put their finger on exactly why it is they're feeling what they're feeling. All they know is they've got this deep sorrow and they're a lot of times unable to articulate that. And that really requires going inward and doing that work. And obviously the time that you're triggered is not the time to do that, but it's an indication that you've got some unresolved stuff to look at. Yeah, I, I love that because actually I had an occurrence with my daughter when she was about 12 and uh, she we were out in public and she started shouting at me about something. I wanted I wanted to go to a cafe and I wanted to do some lessons in the cafe and she just wanted to go to the cafe and have fun because who can blame her? And she started shouting at me in public and I got very, very upset. I was like, I grabbed hold of her arm. I was like, shh, like this. I, I was really super triggered and I realized that it was because when I was growing up, uh, it was very important to put a kind of uh, like a, a cohesive face on in public. And actually that wasn't just unique to my family. It's a very English thing, actually, that we don't express emotions in public and people, not even good ones, <laughs> you know, like you're not even really allowed to express really happy emotions in England. It's very strange. Um, but we, you know, we like to, you know, this whole idea of reticence. And I was very much brought up with that. And I realized that I was, I was very triggered by my daughter in public with people. I thought people would be judging me as a mother and judging her as a daughter. And we went to the cafe and I sat down and I actually had this really long conversation with her. And I said, look, I'm really sorry about how I reacted. And I've realized that it was about me and it wasn't about you at all. And it was, and I, we ended up having this very long conversation about my upbringing and how I wanted to be a mother to her. And, and it was, it was a really lovely experience, but if I hadn't been open to that, I think it, that's one of those where I, it could just have passed me by and it could have just become a new, like a, a generational thing that was handed down. Absolutely. And that is such a powerful example because really we're, we're reaching for a greater connection with our children and the connection is at the root of our relationships. Right. And you know, sometimes the string is, is, is wrought thin and sometimes there's a lot of give, but that string itself, that connection is what will carry through the lifetime of our relationships, right? So it's built on that foundation and that's really, really beautiful. There are some people listening who will say it's a very similar similar argument actually to when you put people in put children into school and they say well actually children need to learn these things they need to learn that life is wonderful they need to learn that bullying exists and how to deal with it and and one argument is that children need to learn how to obey so that when they become adults and they have a job at McDonald's or whatever and somebody says to do something they do it without going oh actually you're infringing upon my rights as a human being or whatever and what do you how would you counter that kind of argument because it's quite a popular one isn't it though so from an anarchist perspective again um if we are giving permission to be a part of a system like here's an example on our project world school team retreats right it's a company that my son and i co-created a little over 10 years ago and we've brought hundreds of teens to different places around the world for these immersive world schooling experiences. We don't have rules, but we have agreements and we have agreements in place. We send the agreements to each team participant beforehand. And the first day of our trip, we go over them and we explain why we need to have these in place. And we ask everybody to give us a thumbs up. Do you agree to this? And here's why. And one of them is consent. Another one is, you know, no sex. So another one is no drugs. You know, another one is no firearms, you know, or dangerous things like that. Another one is no absence from the community. And all of these are in place, not for arbitrary reasons, but to protect the community, to allow us to be able to come together and do these things. So there are, you know, somebody may just translate the guidelines into the word rules. Okay, so be it. But if you opt in 
to participating, this is the criteria that you must agree to. So that's a voluntary act of consent. And so with your example of somebody working in, in McDonald's, well, if they are opting to work at McDonald's, then here is the system and the structure. So, you know, those two things are not in, in, in those two things are incongruent with each other opting into a system and saying, I want to opt into the system, but do it my way. Well, then it's not a good fit. And there's something to be learned there, right? I think I think people would say, perhaps when it comes to thinking of agreements within a family, that they are there for protective reasons. So for example, you might have an agreement about swearing. And in order to I don't know, protect in some ways your younger children. And I'm guessing what you would say is that the child is not voluntarily in the family unit. So perhaps they don't have to opt in or, or is there a case for actually saying, do you know what, it's okay to have these agreements within the family? No, it is okay to have these agreements within the family, but the agreements within the family should be co-created, right? So I know many families with multiple children that have all you know, created their guidelines that work for the, that family. And the kids come up with it. You know, the kids say, okay, mom and dad need to go to sleep um, because they're working. So our rule in the house is we can't blast music after midnight. Great. They, they co-created that rule because they're a part of this family unit, right? Um, let's talk about something like brushing teeth. <laughs> because that's always a big one that unschoolers talk about. Um, this actually goes beyond unschooling. This, this really, we're talking about partnership parenting, and a lot of people will apply this philosophy. Some people call it radical unschooling. I call it partnership parenting. But in essence, here, here's the idea. If you have a child... Um, let's just say, let's just give it a random age, like seven. And let's say your child doesn't want to brush their teeth. What do you do if you are in partnership with this child? Well, you invite the child to come in and, and have a conversation, sit on the toilet while you brush your teeth, right? You're modeling that this is important. Then you talk about not in a manipulative way. Here are the natural consequences of not doing it. Um, and then talk about, well, this is your body, your choice. How do you feel about your own health? And what do you think drilling and pulling out a, a cavity and all that would feel like? I'm not saying scare your child, but explore what the natural consequences are. And if they still don't want to brush your teeth, you need to let go and every night invite them to come sit on the toilet and chat with you while you're brushing your teeth and you are modeling this behavior. And when nat natural consequences do occur, right, then you're you're standing alongside them to have that experience as well. Um, I don't feel not brushing your teeth is if they don't want to brush their teeth at seven, it does not indicate as an adult, they won't brush your teeth. It doesn't indicate that it indicates in this moment, they are expressing and playing with their autonomy. And if they are doing that, it's up to us to honor them because let's face it, intrinsic motivation is the most important aspect or skill to develop, right? When kids are forced to go to school, they are extrinsically motivated. They are told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and why. And then they're tested that they did it, <laughs> you know, the thing. Um, when you're not in a school situation, it's it's an invitation to explore the internal worlds and find those spaces inside of us that light us up, that motivate us. And sometimes it requires a period of de-schooling, right? And de-schooling is the word that we use to start unpacking and pulling apart and questioning these ideas and things like that. And sometimes for children that go to school and then are taken out of the system, they may spend six months to a year doing nothing, 
just completely expressing their freedom. And sometimes that looks like playing video games or watching TV or sleeping, you know, sometimes it doesn't look like a lot to us. But what that means is they are starting to go inward and understand what their autonomy feels like. And because they've never had it, and they've been told what to do, they are doing what they want to do. And I'm going to tell you, for somebody who raised a child that went to school and then became unschooled, right? He was nine when he stopped school. My my child, he did go through a period of a year of video game playing. And then after that, everything lit him up. He became excited about literature and mythology and origin stories and world histories. And suddenly the world was like this really exciting place because there were no limits. And that motivation he probably would have never found if he wasn't in school. He read things like H.P. Lovecraft at 10 years old, and this is, I can't read this stuff. It's like the English is so complicated to me. Um, and the storytelling is is very, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not my style. But, but I don't know how a 10-year-old just like comprehended it and pulled apart, read each of these stories and pulled them apart and, and read them to me and told me about them and, and expanded on this you know, he called it um, cosmic horror. And it just was really, really fascinating to watch his mind just expand and get excited by these things. And some people would say, you know, like, maybe that maybe HP Lovecraft isn't age appropriate, or maybe it is, but it turned him on to reading things that other people said were out out of his range or scope. He read the Iliad at 12. You know, to me, that's that's a crazy undertaking, right? And then this is obviously because he had that autonomy, he was able then to make his free choices and knowing that it would be honored. And you mentioned how important it is to allow children to express their autonomy. And if they don't want to clean their teeth, you know what, being able to express their autonomy is more important at that moment than getting them to sort of clean their, te clean their teeth. But are there any uh, circumstances that you could envisage in a family where there's kind of red lines to that, where actually that they're, they're them expressing their autonomy is not as important as as doing something that they need to be doing. Something that they need to be doing. Um, I'm I'm gonna just sort of put a pin on that in a and come back to that so we can define that. I find that the spaces, since I work in the field of mental health, I find that the spaces that are most important to keep an eye on, and I've got a whole chapter of red flags in my book, are things like um, eating disorders, um, self-harm, suicide ideation. Um, there's there are some instances where drug drug use and experimentation can be problematic. Um, sexual contact, like this requires connection in order to have safe spaces to talk about that. So suicide ideation is something you do not want to brush under the, the rug, right? This is serious. And these, and also eating disorders, those are things that you really do need to seek professional help on um, because of the safety of the human being, right? And that really is important. Um, I write out and, and explore the different stages of drug use there is experimentation there is social connection then there is use of of drugs to numb out and then finally there are there's addiction so the last two are extremely problematic if you go into parenting your teens not accepting but expecting that the first two are going to be experimentation and social engagement with drugs and alcohol that's going to be a part of your child's experience your teen's experience you just, we just live in a world where that is what it is and if you have the communication and the connection to be able to walk them through and have them reflect on their experiences, hopefully this is these two first two 
are at a minimum and um but you have the connection with your child if if they go into the last two which is numbing out or not feeling their feelings or addiction then those are the spaces that there absolutely needs to be some some interaction and and you know not interference what's the word i'm looking for intervention intervention Intervention. thank you and and you mentioned that you wanted to come back to the phrase something they need to be doing and actually as i was saying it it didn't feel right i couldn't think of a better way of putting it but it but i i'm not surprised you wanted to jump back on that one yeah yeah yeah. so so just addressing that that even if it's something they need to be doing how do you define that? Like what? They need to be breathing. Yeah, they're already doing that. They need to eat. They need to sleep. They need to go to the bath. They do that. Those are the things that they need, right? You know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like we need connection. We need, you know, food, shelter, air, clean air, you know, peace, safety, all that stuff, right? What else do they need to do? I don't know. I know that when my son committed to a project, he asked me to support him because he didn't believe that he had the discipline to be able to do it every day. And for him, it was a writing project. And he said to me, mom, please, every morning, remind me that I need to write for X amount of minutes and post it here. Okay. You sure you want me to be in that role? Yes. So in this scenario, right, he's asked me to support and help him in this commitment that he intrinsically was motivated to make, even though he needed help, then maybe he needed to do it. But the day that he said, I'm done with this project, we're done. I said, okay. And quitting and that internal knowing that he was done was, was enough. That was enough. So did he need to do it? Well, he wanted to do it. I just don't know what people need to do. If you've committed to a job and the person has made the commitment, they're not being forced to, you know, they've, they've said, okay, I'm going to take this job. And they asked you for help to get up every morning. So they get there on time then that that's that's a voluntary interaction relationship and we're supporting each other but for me to go into my child's room and you know turn on the lights and pull yank the covers off of him and say get up go because you need to go like that that's not my role if he doesn't want to go to work what are the natural consequences he doesn't need for me to yell at him or punish him the natural consequences he's going to get fired right so I don't know. <laughs> In actual fact, it's one of those where the consequences are sort of out of your hands and they'll be dealt with for him, right? Like you say, he'll just lose the yeah. job. You mentioned uh, quite early on in the podcast, actually, about parents sort of moving out of their kind of comfort zone a little bit and getting used to being uncomfortable. And one thing when you were talking about those, the kind of red lines when it comes to uh, suicidal ideation, eating disorder, sexual, sexual conduct, that kind of thing, it made me realize, and you were talking about how important connection is. And, and I thought it, you know, the whole point I'm guessing of this approach is that your child feels that they can come to you about anything because that connection is there. And then it made me think, you know, as an, as a kind of English person, like, do I want my child to come to me about all the things they're getting up to, like sexually? And I thought, mm, I kind of really don't. And then I thought, is this what Lainey means when she says we need to be uncomfortable? It, yeah, you're nodding. So like, okay, oh, yeah. so the, the British person oh, yeah. in me is freaking out now. <laughs> so for me, it's it's a true honor to be that person that that my child comes to and also with the work I do other teams come to me for that because their parents may be a little like oh I don't want to talk about that um but you know your discomfort if that's what you're bringing into the relationship and it gets between your connection how much are you going to value your discomfort you don't want to go there over connection is it more important for you not to be comfortable and and sacrifice the connection if you say yes to that that there's your answer right 
there's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do. If you've already decided, I don't want that. But the natural consequence of not feeling comfortable about having conversations about my daughter's sexuality or whatever the thing is, right? If that really triggers me so much, then if you're deciding that you're going to to fuse or not fuse, but sever, sever that connection because your discomfort is much more important than the connection or the lack of discomfort is much more important than the connection, then there you go. I think our children are our best teachers. If there are spaces that we're uncomfortable, that means we have ideas, belief systems, and uh, thoughts and emotions that need to be looked at and possibly healed, right? If we have shame around sexuality, then that's our relationship to sexuality. If we have fear around you know, our possibly, you know, our daughter getting pregnant or something along those lines, we don't want them to get hurt, then there's something inside of us that had an experience that goes to that automatically. I don't believe that my son or daughter, I don't have a daughter, but I don't believe that they're going to have this negative experience. If, if I had a bad relationship with my own sexuality or something that happened in my past, that may be playing a part in my judgment. I don't want them to get hurt like I did, or I don't want them to go make the same mis mistakes like I did. Well, that's my, what I did is my journey. This is not their journey. If you have those concerns, the way to find connection is through the vulnerability of sharing those those concerns, right? You know, here's what happened to me in my experience as, as somebody your age. And when I think of you going down this path, of course, all I can think of is what my experience was. And my experience was this, and I know it's not your experience, but I'm accountable to let you know, because we're in relation with one another, why this is triggering me or triggering for me, right? Not your work, but this is my work. And I just wanted you to be aware of that, but let's talk about it. It makes me uncomfortable, but I really want to be there for you. And that feels really different than no. Some parents listening to this might just think, you know what? I don't want to do this work. I don't want to have this relationship with my children. I, I like connection sounds lovely, but I, I like it just is it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot to sort of like confront. And and uh, and I'm guessing for those people, you would just say, well, that's your you know, that's a choice that choice that they're making. Yeah, absolutely. That This is not for everybody, but I will tell you, this is the way to completely devastate your generational patterns. It, it stops them in their tracks, the generational traumas and wounds end, right? They end and they end through honesty, connection, authenticity, um, awareness of, again, the inner worlds. Um, you know, as parents, we want obviously want what's best for our children. We love our children, but I don't want my child to go into the world and ha and be faced with the same sort of healing of trauma and and some of these childhood um, you know belief systems that were imprinted on me. I don't want him to have those same challenges. It was very painful. Like I had to heal a lot of of patterns that were really, you know, kind of in the form of self-sabotage. And I don't ever want my child to have to go through those things. Yeah. So in lots of ways you were doing the work in order to prevent your child having to do the work in 20 years time. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I mean, we all, he's going to have to do some work because God knows I'm not perfect. <laughs> but Hopefully it's not the same stuff, right? Hopefully, you know, this, he doesn't have to heal wounds or belief systems that are really negative. Maybe it's just about whatever's coming up inside of him, like finding his passion or who knows what, I don't know. I'll let you know in 20 years. <laughs>
<laughs> I always say to my friends who are mothers, I always say, you know, they're always sort of like trying to prevent sort of bad, you know, sort of bad things entering the relationship. And I always say, do you know what? There'll always be something they'll go to therapy about. <laughs> There's oh, always man. something you'll have done that they'll, that they'll unpack with a the therapist. <laughs> so for people who are listening, who think that this sounds like a great approach to parenting and would like to give it a go, are there any kind of um, sort of like starting things you would recommend or like practical sort of tips that you would recommend to, to get them started on the journey? Sure. Well, um, I would, I'm going to give you two pieces of advice. The first one is if you can, if you notice there's, there's a lot of conflict in your family, one of the first um, practices that, that I suggest to families in order for the parents to start understanding their internal worlds is become the watcher of themselves as they're interacting with their child. And if they find that they are starting to get dysregulated or triggered in some way, make, uh, make it a practice to pause pause, remove yourself from the situation. And I've even had a family that I worked with that I had them put post-it notes everywhere on their house that said, pause, we are a family that pauses. We are a pause family, pause, 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 press pause. And that became one of the mantras within the family. And the children started saying to the parents, I think you need a pause, right? And not in a bad way, but that is empowering the connection within the family. Go away, process whatever's going on and come back and repair. So a family that pauses, that's the first step of starting to really understand. And then pick up my book. <laughs> I talk about partnership parenting and there's a whole chapter of tools in there. And the more awareness, the more that a person can poke around in their inner worlds and become familiar with what their triggers are, what their shadows are, what they're hiding behind a veil of shame, um, you know, what needs haven't been met, where are the spaces that still need healing from looking at their inner child and their, their entire history, and then sort of unpacking the belief systems they have around family, children, um, ideas around, you know, cultural, uh, what's correct and what's not, and really pull those things apart and take a look at that. Because a lot of times you'll find that these foundational beliefs about that include childism are something that we just inherited from culture or society at large. And if that doesn't feel in alignment, we can make the choice to no longer integrate that as part of our reality and really bring that into light. So if, if, if as a family, you're exploring the idea of childism, some people call it adultism too, by the way, depending which perspective they're talking about, but if that's something that you guys want to eradicate in your family and that's part of your family's core values, talk about it. Keep talking about it and talk some more about it. And uh, I mean, your book that's, it came out about a year ago now, right? And it has been very successful and, and it, it gets a lot of great reviews. And I know a lot of people, uh, I know Naomi Fisher, who's been on the podcast and Sarah Beale, who've been, who've been on the podcast. They've all given you amazing reviews for your book and, and, and it is so popular. What do you think is, is sort of behind its popularity? I mean, apart from your brilliant writing, what, do, do you think oh, that God. we're at a kind of, <laughs> do you think we're at a kind of vanguard of change here? I mean, is, is it sort of riding on a wave or what is happening there? Do you think, because your book has been, it really has been popular, right? Yeah. So I think what sets my book apart from all the books in the field is I distill neurobiology, psychology, uh, hormonal information with the deep research that I did, but I'm not a PhD or an MD. I am a lay person that is an autodidactic self-directed learner that was interested in these topics. And I did these deep dives and the way that I tell the story and portray the information, I distill it in a way that it's accessible to parents. I've also woven in stories from my own childhood to share, you know, here's an example of 
of what I experienced and the beliefs that came about that. Here's a shame story. Here's this, here's that. And then I go into the science or the philosophy behind um, how, how to start integrating and healing those sorts of wounds. Um, there's also a really robust um, chapter of tools. And so it's not just reading philosophy, it's doing it and it's uncovering and discovering and, and revealing. And I also talk about, like I said, partnership parenting in this. So partnership parenting, personal stories, rich, rich, um, uh, and easy to access um, information about biology, neurobiology, the brain, um, hormones, and psychology, and, and different psychological modalities. Um, so it gives you a really broad spectrum, and I bring it all in the context of raising uh, tweens and teens. And even if you're a parent and your children are still very young, Pick it up now because you need to be prepared and it'll help you to start moving into greater partnership in your family. And when you start doing these tools, using these tools, you are then creating the awareness. So when you move through the relationship as your child grows up, you've got the awareness and you can help to facilitate their own exploration of their internal worlds by connecting through vulnerability. You know, I did this, this tool and here's what I discovered about myself and here are the things that I'm working on. And maybe you can find some similarities in your journey too. Do you want me to facilitate the tool? Do you want to, you want to give it a shot, a try? And that's a lot different than you are doing this, get mentally well, or men, you know, get greater mental health. That doesn't work. <laughs> right. Right. So the, one of the points we connect is through vulnerability and through authenticity. One thing I really liked about your book, actually, as you mentioned, was the fact that it has a really strong scientific rigor throughout it that is explained in a really nice, simple way. But it's not so it's not just like because sometimes with with this topic, you get a lot of uh, personal experience and ideology in a book or you get a lot of scientific studies or you get a lot of practical advice. You don't always get, you, in fact, you very rarely get them all in one place. And that's one thing I liked was that it has all of these, all of these kind of uh, themes running through it. And I think that's why it's, it's popular because, because again, it's not written by, by a psychologist and there's nothing wrong with psychologists, but you know, their writing style is very clinical for the most part, mine is not mine's, you know, I, I, I engage in storytelling, even with the science and storytelling, right? So Lainey's book is seen, heard and understood. And it's on Amazon, I think, right? Pretty yeah, sure that's why I got it. It's available in every country through Amazon. There's digital version. There is a, um, uh, hard, uh, sorry, a uh, paperback version. And then I just released the anniversary edition. So it's a hardback. It's a little larger format. And I did add about six new tools. And if you pick up this version, it's got a, a picture of my painting on the cover. <laughs> it is. A, it's a shame. It's a podcast because it's very beautiful. It's a very beautiful painting. Oh, what yeah, I'll do is I'll put really... I'll put the link so that everyone can see because that is a nice painting you've got on the cover there. Thank you, thank you. And in the the back of the book, there is a gift. Um, I'm offering a 45 minute free session with me. So if you pick up the book, you've got the ability to go through the book. And if there are spaces where you're feeling stuck, make an appointment. We'll we'll work it out. <laughs> and actually, from a personal point of view, my my daughter was sort of struggling uh, about a year ago. And, you know kind of classic teenage girl thing but you never really know with teenage girls how much of it is normal behavior how much of it is something you need to worry about and I booked her in for uh Lainey's it was a 12-week 
uh, sort of group mentoring for teens. She absolutely loved it. And actually, a, a few weeks ago, I think I think uh, it was my my mother said, "Oh, actually, you know, Corinne's doing a lot a lot better recently." And I said, "Yeah, she really does seem to have come out of, of that kind of slump." And I and I said, "So I'm like, I wonder why that is." And then I thought, I know exactly why it is. It's because she attended Lainey's <laughs> course. And as a life coach, I often get clients who say, "Joe, you know I just feel so much better recently. I don't know why it is." And I feel like saying, "It's because we're doing all this work together." And it's like you feel like going, um, hello, it's because of me. But actually, I realized that I'd done the same with you. I'd sort of been like, I don't know why that is. How strange. Then I was like, I know exactly why it is. It's because she attended Lainey's course. <laughs> We're still in contact. She comes to my free, you know, uh, meetups during the week. And she always knows that she can she can have a tune up all she has to do is message me and we'll jump online and and talk and I genuinely care about each of the teens that I work with I care that they're seen heard and understood I care that they know that there's an adult that will show up for them and there's no catch I'm not there to judge them and that feels really good to have that and I think that really comes through as well. And I think the teenagers that you work with really re- sort of really pick up on that because the reviews that you get from your teenagers that attend are so glowing and they're so lovely. So, yeah. okay. So for anyone who's listening, I will be in our Facebook group. I will be putting up any links that Lainey's mentioned and links to her links to her book. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Lainey. It's been really inspiring talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.